I'm Anya Harrison, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 411. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hallo! Hey, son, hey, son! Andras, you're back! And you're look healthy. Yes, I am. You have recovered. Uh, yes, thank you very much <laughs> just about, for asking. Just about recovered. <laughs> well, I did go through a couple of um, bumps um, in the last two weeks uh, while I was still in Malaysia and Singapore. But yeah, yeah, I'm kind of recovered. Mm. I extended my stay by a day because... Um, yeah, one of the engines of the aircraft that I was supposed to leave uh, Singapore on decided to have a malfunction. So wow. uh, we were stranded for <laughs> for a couple of hours. Yeah, it was a 24-hour delay with which I managed to arrive back home. But other than that, everything is fine. How are you guys? Good, good. <laughs> I feel great. Just quick follow-up from last week. Marcus Vant, a Swedish astronaut, yeah, The launch was delayed with one day, but he eventually got up to space. He's up there now and is making all the Swedes very proud. So I guess he'll be landing in a week after you hear this. I don't know the exact date, but we'll be following his adventures, I think. Very exciting, for me at least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there is that we are in the middle of a selection process for Hungarian astronauts as well. Have you applied? No, no, no. Of course not. The Hungarian <laughs> government really wants to send people to space. I, I don't know. They don't want to show the world that we are there. I think you um, should apply. Know. Maybe they want a tour guide. Yeah, I occasionally <laughs> jokingly say to the company that whenever they start organizing the tour to the moon, I'm their first choice oh. um, as a tour guide. So very good. That's Very good. not a question. <laughs> yeah, I would probably get really sick. But uh, other than that, <laughs> so how's how's the weather in your countries? Upside down. Uh, it's been very cold for a while in Sweden, but now it's back to five, six uh, above zero. Very wet. Very boring weather. Nothing you want to have. <laughs> yeah, with us it was pretty much the same. It was very snowy and. Um, maybe not a lot of snow, but we had snow, and that's for saying something for hmm. where I am, <laughs> uh, because you usually uh. never get snow. So it like about ten centimeters, but it all went within a day, and now it's very springy outside, and mm. like not warm yet, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> and it's gonna fool all the vegetation as well, so plants are gonna start budding soon, mm. and then in March a couple of freezes will come back in, so that that will 
do the trick of uh, not having fruits available for this summer either. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, and that's exactly one of the topics that um, Holm Hümmler might talk about on February 1st in Cologne, ah. um, where he will be for Skeptics in the Pub Cologne. I talked about it um, last week, but I just want to remind our listeners from yeah. Cologne or the area around Cologne that there will be a German Skeptics in the Pub talk in Cologne in Herbrands on February the 1st. Great. And what's the topic? The arguments of climate change deniers. <laughs> ah, okay. Okay, okay. Um, well, yeah. Whoever is in denial of some kind of topic that we have a scientific consensus on, I think we can establish that they just basically don't know what they're talking about. And they probably don't know how to read scientific papers. Oh. So this is one of the reasons uh, why we really wanted, it's been going on for a long time, uh, scheduling this interview, but we really, really wanted to have Anya Harrison on, who's running the collaborative library. So basically this episode is dedicated to that interview with her that uh, we recently recorded so yeah uh, and just to make sure people don't get confused it's not annika harrison it's anya yes, harrison exactly. so, <laughs> yeah, just by yeah, coincidence yeah. almost the same name totally different person they're both wonderful yeah <laughs> so this is the show people this is the show with the two harrisons the two yeah. a harrisons <laughs> not the two doctors the two harrisons <laughs> only here on the esp <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, but uh, yeah, I cannot wait to share this with our listeners because it's great. Uh, the whole project and the enthusiasm with which Anya talks about this is a must to listen to. <laughs> Every now and then, we interview someone whose work is of interest to our listeners and skeptics around Europe. Today, our guest is Anya Harrison, a lecturer and program lead at King's College London. She's also the initiator and CEO of the Collaborative Library, a community effort to make scientific papers more comprehensible to all. Anya, welcome to the ESP. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> so we met you at a wonderful event, QED, where you offered, I believe it was two slots for the workshop that you called How to Read a Scientific Paper. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And some of us signed up immediately because that's something we really need to know how to do. <laughs> exactly. And, and uh, yeah, for skeptics, I think that is a crucial thing to learn. The, the whole thing came out of a project that you were the initiator of and you are currently leading. And that is a collaborative library. So what is that? And why is it important? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I guess I might as well start with a question here. And that is, have you ever tried accessing a paper unsuccessfully or found yourself short of time of reading one or tried reading it, but found it so in so absolutely hard to read that you couldn't really progress with it? Um, no, not since lunch is the answer. <laughs> not since lunch. Well, that, that, that's very reassuring. But I think this is a problem that we've come across time and time again. First, when I was a student, I had no clue how to read papers, how to access them and what they meant and so on and so forth. And it kind of like carries through. Uh, so now, obviously, I'm not a student anymore. But I guess what I'm trying to say is science can be very intimidating, especially when all the research is locked up in such dense jargon. Um, but what 
I guess the hope is is that there will be a place where researchers, clinicians, service users, and 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 really the wider public can share all the knowledge in a way that is easy to understand and accessible. And that's where the collaborative library idea comes in, basically. So what what we are is an online platform dedicated to bringing scientific knowledge sort of to the masses, if you will, um, by providing kind of a space for people to share plain language summaries of research articles. And we also provide tools that can help people understand the quality of published articles, which will be uh, of interest to uh, the skeptics amongst us. Mm, indeed. And which you partially covered on the workshop that you, we, we mm -hmm. mentioned previously. So you briefly mentioned a little bit of what makes it's hard to access scientific papers. But maybe you can break that down a little bit uh, to say what are the most common things? What we, we talk sometimes about open access. Maybe you should explain what that is and yeah. why it's good. <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's two things here perhaps that are worth explaining. So the first one is open access and the second one is accessibility. So open access as such um, is becoming better but it's not quite there yet. What is meant by open access? That means that if you find an article that you find interesting, you can actually click it and access it. As simple as that. But what usually happens, or in the majority of the cases happens, is you find an article you think is really interesting, and then you hit that paywall. So you can't actually access it. Yeah. Um, last year, the UK has released a, a policy that enables a lot of the research now to be open access going forward as of this year. And there's a lot of movement in terms of making more and more papers open access. However, that obviously doesn't necessarily apply retrospectively. So a lot of the papers are still behind paywalls. And that's something that is a bit of a problem considering that a lot of the uh, research is publicly funded and should be available publicly for everyone to to access. The second thing not just open access, but also accessibility is kind of an, another layer to it. So now imagine you actually have access to the paper, but then let's say it's on, I don't know, quantum physics or something. Like who can understand that? Well, quantum <laughs> physicists probably, but wouldn't it be wonderful if you actually had a way of having someone break down the concept so you can understand what the gist of it is? I guess we're, we're in a, in an air, sort of an era where a lot of interdisciplinary research is uh, happening. And how else can we facilitate other than by making sure that the disciplines can talk to each other. And I think that's one of the key things that we want to do and help with. Is it comparable to simple English Wikipedia? I mean, like just this breaking down process? Kind of, I guess in a way. Wikipedia is, tends to be a bit of a mashup of different sources, doesn't it? And I guess what we're trying to do is make sure that people can access the original source of that information. Because I think sometimes in the process of mashing up and breaking down concepts uh, in, in a bit of a, like a summary of different types mm. of sources, it can become a bit muddled. So what we rather want to do is we want to basically break down the original research so people can then start building their own picture of how it sits within the wider literature and, and what the results mean and so on and so forth. So starting at the root of, of yeah. the thing. Mm -hmm. How is it done, technically speaking? So someone uh, who's an expert on the field will mm -hmm. sit down and try to break it all down to a certain level so that mm -hmm. people at a certain level of understanding of that field can really take it in. 
Yes, in a nutshell, that's what it is. It's obviously like if you think about it logistically, it's a fantastic idea, and having this huge repository of lay summaries. But like, who's actually going to do the work? And we've exactly. thought about this <laughs> because obviously we we need to make sure that、uh, people get something from doing it, other than just a warm fuzzy feeling of having done something that sh- they should really be doing anyway. I.e., the researchers uh, uh, communicate their results to people that want to find out about them. And I guess the the mechanism, and this is where sort of my my educational head comes in. You see, at universities like King's College London, where I work, a lot of coursework is not really used in an efficient way. So students submit coursework, and it goes in some sort of folder on their laptops, and they get a grade from it, and that's it. But what I propose is, why don't we actually turn That coursework into something that is really usable. So basically, what we propose is that the the engine that is going to pr- be producing the majority of lay summaries is going to be students that are then marked by the experts in their field. And in that collaboration of students and、uh, experts in the field, the content can be generated. These types of assessment are already happening anyway at at most universities. If you ask around across different programs, most of them already have lay summary assignments on them because lay summaries are such an important thing to be. Doing and learning about, and you may not necessarily know, but research is is quite pushed for impact generation. What does that mean? So basically, if you're at a、yeah. university and you're a researcher and you're publishing your results, your university can submit all the work that you do to this body, this agency, if you will, and they will then award money. To universities that are doing particularly well in different sort of areas, and one of those areas is impact. And impact means that basically you're not just in your ivory tower of research, communicating with no one else, but instead you are actually bringing your research out into the world, and you can demonstrate how nicely your research has impacted on society, whatever. The, the impact might be,、uh, and that is something that obviously we can help with. So we're trying to entice researchers to to disseminate their findings to then obviously also get something back for their universities. So kind of the idea is everyone benefits. So the students get something they can publish, the public gets something they can access, the researchers get a means of actually creating impact, and all of it. I should be mentioning it's free. So the platform is kind of like. Organized in a way that is kind of like self-sustaining, because we want to be able to make sure that everyone can access this information without needing to sign up or pay some sort of fee. That's kind of the, the the crux of it. So basically, creating a means whereby everyone who contributes or consumes that information has something from it. So I, I'm I'm thinking here if. Researchers are spending a lot of time writing up their their studies, what they actually arrived at. They are using a lot of very technical words a lot、mm-hmm. of the time, which is a problem for accessibility. But how, can you actually explain that in lay terms without losing part of the content? Is there a risk here that you misinterpret、yes. the study and people get、yeah. the wrong idea? Yeah, because it is a translation, if you will. It is. I mean, if you're thinking about、uh, like research papers, some of them are two pages long. Others are review articles specifically are sometimes thirty pages long. If you're squeezing that into a summary of like say something like between five and eight minutes, yes, you are going to lose information. But I guess what we mustn't be、uh, confusing here is that the aim of what we're trying to do. It's not convey every last bit of detail. But instead, we want to give people sort of a snapshot that has been vetted by a professional, 
to kind of convey the key messages of that paper. Alongside the, the lay summary that is displayed on the, on the page itself, there's also like a lot of information that the, the, the researchers uploading the lay summary need to provide. So what's the original article? Who published it? What's the context? Da, da, da. And then there's also quality checklists that they can upload alongside it. So basically, let's say they have a certain type of study for each different types of study. There is a different checklist and they can then go through to give the reader an idea of how good the study is. I guess as we sort of accumulate more and more papers, what will be uh, something that we will want to be doing is putting things in sort of a nodal network so people can understand how one piece of research relates to another. And there is also platforms that are then specializing on kind of a bit more of a contextual representation of different topics. We're also uh, now collaborating uh, with publishing platforms, uh, including Octopus, who are keen to interlink their platforms with us. So Octopus are a publisher uh, of the scientific kind, if you will, that operate more on sort of the researcher level, if that makes sense. So what we're trying to do is mm -hmm. we're trying to create a base that everyone can understand. And then we're linking in for those people who are really keen to understand more, read more. So people can go to the, the original article, they can read that, they can maybe go on uh, to a more professional site or, or a site that is more uh, directed at professionals where they can uh, delve into the depth We also do provide uh, guidance materials on how to, to read, how to understand and how to approach the topic of lay summaries in general. So that is something that we're currently building. So if any of you listeners has any specific requests or things that you would find particularly useful to be appearing on the website, then please email us at hello at the collaborative library.com. We are very keen to hear because what we're ultimately wanting to achieve is sort of this community driven platform where people can request things that they would find useful because it tends to be that a lot of people find the same things quite difficult. Like, for instance, uh, on the back of the QED, I've had a lot of people ask about like explaining basic statistical concepts. So we're currently working on putting together a bit of an overview of uh, how to interpret p-values and these types of things that pretty much occur mm -hmm. in most of the papers mm -hmm. that you see. I find it fascinating that there is an ongoing and a developing collaboration with uh, publishers as well, as you mentioned, because one of the things that came to my mind right when I started learning about yeah, the collaborative library is that it could be used as you use an abstract at the beginning of a paper that is supposed to give you a general idea of what it is about mm -hmm. and what the results show, you could add to that a lay summary of the whole thing so that if someone wants to understand what's going on there, the publisher themselves, they could offer that and that could be generated by the collaborative library itself. So is that one of the goals of that kind of collaboration with the publishers? Yeah, so so yes and no. <laughs> I need to explain this. So first of all, uh, there are already <laughs> publishers that do this. One of the ones that you may have come across is QDOS. So they basically do that thing where they follow up with the people who've published a paper with them in one of their sort of journals. And then they say, why don't you now publish a lay summary? So there's several problems with this. The first one is that usually they tend to be written lay summaries, whereas we think it's actually quite a good idea to offer not just written lay summaries, but also audio lay summaries for our podcast lovers. 
uh, infographics, video lay summaries. So we offer the breadth. That's the first thing. The second thing is, and um, I have not mentioned yet, that we have got a working group from a very diverse background. And what we've done in the run up to like sort of like getting our show on the road is we've had them look at a lot of the stuff that's already available and out there. And they find that websites like QDOS don't really break it down enough in a nutshell. Very often, and I am so guilty of this myself, right? So I'm a, I used to be a researcher. I used to do research uh, with sort of body and mind interaction. Uh, if you break it down, if you want to say it in a fancy way, I used to be a psychoneuroimmunology researcher. And if you publish a few papers on this, and then you think you're breaking it down, and you listen back to yourself, you realize how much jargon is still stuck in there. So I think sometimes if you're the person who's written the paper, it's very hard to detach yourself from this. Some people are fantastic at it, others not so much. So generally speaking, I think the new wave of publishers such like Octopus, who are basically trying to be a bit against the grain of the traditional publishing companies, who are trying to break down the publishing process into smaller bits. Have a look at their website. It's quite fascinating. Octopus, because they are basically proposing breaking the publishing cycle into eight different bits. Octopus. So they're quite clever. And the way that we want to make sure that the people sort of do their own research justice and break it down into a sufficiently plain language is by also offering workshops to our partnering organizations to make sure that they know at which level they need to pitch these types of things. The other platforms that are currently available, they're basically just say, oh, why don't you do a lay summary? And then they just sort of like submit it, but there's no teaching the researchers how to do it because obviously... Well, it just doesn't exist, basically. And that's something that we want to do better. Do you also have plans to create materials for younger students uh, or younger readers, for example, secondary school materials that make science really accessible or something like that? So, yes, not in the immediate. So we've got kind of a bit of a stepped approach to uh, success. Well, hopefully in the longer run here. Uh, and the first one is kind of like to start populating the site a bit more. We have in our working group, a few people that uh, are head teachers with schools, where we're hoping in the longer run to trial some, some case studies that we've already drafted, but we need to kind of like get over the threshold. I think the idea and the one, uh, one of the things that I'm quite passionate about here is like, if I think back to my school, education which has been a while like the way we used to write and the way we used to reason is i mean useless if you will because there's no use of evidence like there's it's just sort of about you you sort of provide cons and pros of an argument but there's no backing to anything and uh, any real skeptic will know that that's not the way you should be doing it so i'm wondering why don't we already teach these types of things at school so i guess uh, this is also a really neat way of preparing younger children and and and, and um uh, teenagers to then later go on to university because i remember having a shock of my life when I first had to use evidence uh, when I started going to university <laughs> and I genuinely didn't understand why I had to do this and how and so on. And that could really be completely removed and it will become second nature. And mm -hmm. think about it, like you're, you're already sort of like training like the next generation of scientists to start reasoning and to start understanding and questioning and well, be skeptic about all of that information that they read online, which I think these days is such an important skill to have at a very young age already. So yes, yes, yes. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> 
It is a very ambitious project, isn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. what's the scope? Are you trying to catch all of science and all the hundreds of thousands of new studies that comes out every year, or that maybe it's even more? Yeah. Uh, how are you going to manage all of that? Oh, yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? I mean, so... It, the first answer to this question is, yes, we would love to make this as big as it can be. And I think we have seen with many social platforms, with sort of collaborative platforms, with community platforms, how much work can get done if we all team up. And if you have a look at our website, we have like a mission statement, which gets all sort of like tear jerky, where we say we can create a resource that no one else could create on their own. And we actually really mean that because I think if you think about it, like the amount of students there are, I think there's thousands of universities worldwide, thousands of students, thousands of courses. And even if we just started doing this as of now for the papers going forwards and we adopted a community-driven approach where, let's say, someone wants to get a lay summary of a certain article and they submit it to our website, which is something that we're planning in the future once we're up and, and running, let's say they can submit that article and say, I would really like that lay summary summarized by someone who knows, and then that could be done. I mean, how clever could that be? And I mean, at the moment, we're already speaking to uh, universities and organizations across the globe. And I don't see why we couldn't really be uh, pushing this to a, a global level quite quickly. One of the sort of future dreams, once we're up and running, and perhaps we've got a bit of government funding to, to, to back this, and we're in the process of applying. So <laughs> we're just luck for that one. Uh, we also want to do things like having um, translators, auto translators on the web pages so people can basically flip it into different languages and I mean that's all sort of like things that we're planning in the future but we've got like a really 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 long ahead kind of vision to make sure that we're not losing ourselves too much in, in detail at this stage but I think to stop me if I'm going on for too long because I'm quite passionate about this you can tell it has so much potential <laughs> yeah. if we just used all of that manpower that, I mean I used to do all this marking at university when I was still a bit sort of like early on in my career I spent hours and hours marking students assessment for well money and experience but imagine those 10 years, I've genuinely done it for 10 years of marking assignments, I could have actually turned out together with the students, lay summaries, how many lay summaries would I have produced by now? It's amazing. And I think it's just something that at the moment is completely not uh, accounted for. And that's not even taking into account all those early career researchers, and perhaps also late uh, career researchers that are keen to to communicate their, their, their stuff to, to the wider audience. Because I think, we're sort of like long gone are the times where where people don't think about this type of thing anymore. I mean, even if you apply for a grant these days, you have to provide a lay summary of what you're trying to do because on the grant funding panel, there is, and rightfully so, people from the public. And I think just mm -hmm. sort of this uh, awakening to the necessity of making this happen has really opened a door for us together with this open access policy that has come into action that I've talked about earlier. And is this um, kind of teaching experience that you mentioned how the idea came about to start this? It's a funny one. 
You see, uh, I think it was a bit of a pandemic idea, if you see what I mean. We, I was sort of like cooped up. I was uh, I was on my first maternity leave as well. Um, at the time, I was sort of uh, walking the dog and I kept thinking, I, I, I need to do something with because Because there's like along my, my time sort of uh, after university and before university, there's there's this one problem that has kind of like cropped up and again, again and again, which is as, as a student, I didn't know how to access, how to sign how to do all of those things. And then when I started doing my PhD, so you see, I studied psychology and then I did a very sort of wet lab, neuroscience-y kind of PhD, crazy as I was. And I literally had to start completely from scratch. <laughs> I didn't know how to hold a pipette at the time. So I had to read a lot of stuff in a lot of, like in a very short space of time. And I was stressing. How useful would it have been to have a lay summary uh, of certain articles available at the time? And then I started working with people with chronic health conditions, all of which were asking me, can I, can I have the paper? Can you send me the paper once you've published the study that I'm participating in? But they weren't really accessible. And then I moved on sort of like doing my research and then um, doing the educational side of things. And then I sort of like met the other end of it again as an educator of all the waste that's going on uh, with not making use of, of student and staff workforce. And then my husband came in. Uh, he's a clinician. And he's basically saying, I am so busy. I haven't got time to drink a cup of tea here. So how on earth am I supposed to be keeping up on top of the literature and I've got this we've got this fun uh, statistic on the page uh, if you've had a look at the page you may have seen it research shows that it would take one individual GP so general practitioner around 628 hours a month to keep up to date with general practice research articles alone I mean that is if you didn't eat and sleep that's still not going to happen. And I think it's just yeah. one of those things where if you look at this and you're kind of thinking, what can we do? What can we do? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's like, you know, when we came to the idea, we were almost like, surely this must already exist. But then it didn't. And then that's how the whole thing unfolded. We were basically, we need to create a space where people can actually help us crunch down and help facilitate sort of this dissemination of research beyond sort of the academic uh, circles. And that's how it all came about. Mm. So so how, how many people are involved at the moment with this? Obviously, Ooh. you're very passionate, but you can't do all of it yourself. <laughs> no, that's true. So I wrote my poor husband, Anthony, into it as well, uh, who is, who's also working with me on the project. But we've got a really fantastic working group. So on the web page, uh, you can see I, I have not actually taken count. We are growing. Uh, I would say we're probably in the region of 25 now. And the working mm -hmm. group works in a very, so it's a very sort of dip in and about kind of way we basically know um, what these experts by experience or expert by profession have uh, sort of special knowledge wise and then if we have like a question specific to that relevant area we get in touch and then they kind of like give us some guidance or we redesigned the website a while ago and we then said can you all have a look so basically that's the kind of level of involvement from our working group at the moment it's mainly me doing most of it all the sort of talking to the different organizations and so on and so forth we do have a web team that runs the website uh, <laughs> but the website is also all hand designed by me originally uh, so every little icon you can see on the web page I drew so you can you can you can get that uh, there's not been much sleeping going on recently here uh, but it's okay because I'm, I'm on maternity leave and I don't sleep much anyway <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and what would keep you busy if not this? Um, so how is it different from just regular science communication? And this is where there are sometimes even clashes between the scientific community and those mm -hmm. of communicators of science, that they are not necessarily experts on one field or the other, but they are pretty good in general at giving mm -hmm. lay summaries. Yes. So is that like a, a resource that could be used? So yes, possibly barring licensing issues, potentially. That said, so I oh, think okay. the way in which our platform is a bit different. So, I mean, the first thing to say is how useful would it be to actually have it in one place? Because one of the things that I came across time and time again when I worked on as a researcher on, on studies in the past is that participants ask me, where am I going to find the final paper? well, <laughs> maybe on the charity webpage, and then they don't know the name of the study. So how on earth are they going to find it? If you had one central outlet for lay summaries that you could just browse by topic, and then you could find the, the studies that you're interested in, how useful would that be? Mm -hmm. The second mm -hmm. thing, I guess, is that, and I think I, I sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier, is that we are not doing that thing where we're so much giving like an overview of different topics, but we're trying to really guide people down to the individual paper. And that is something that oh, can yeah. enable people to basically look at once we're at that point in time where we have sufficient papers on each topic on there, people can actually look at the papers themselves and then build their own narrative rather than just doing that thing where they read what someone else's interpretation of it is. It's, just, it's effectively, if you think about it, it's we're trying to teach everyone to kind of like think scientifically if you will because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. ultimately and this is also something that is uh, quite obvious in when, if you're working in whatever uh, scientific field there's no two researchers that have exactly the same opinion of the same topic like you will always have people quarreling over pretty much anything and rather than just reading it from from a third person's perspective you can read it firsthand you can read however many papers you like and then you can kind of like come up with your own way of interpreting and i think that is kind of what up to date people haven't been able to do yet and i think they should be so everybody's talking about ai at, mm -hmm. this, at the moment is there anything is that a technology that you could use as well i mean this is a different approach but maybe that could be used to achieve the same thing oh yes uh we've certainly trialed it i mean of course we would be mad not to at least trial it at the moment <laughs> uh, certain types of ai software are really bad it, they confabulate things they put mm. in information that's yeah. completely and entirely wrong but let's face it i mean if we've come this far this is probably only going to be a matter of time in fact very recently i co-hosted a talk on on the use of human versus ai generated lay summaries as part of the uk rn the research reproducibility network and that was a podcast that i think you can probably still listen to if you if you're uh, browsing their website ukrn is and i think what we need to be aware of that in the future this will be easy peasy easily done like you basically throw in the paper it throws something out but i guess what you sort of perhaps lose is quite frankly the human touch like the kind of like is this information really presented in a way that really reflects the key findings or is it just like a random summary of something that has been generated by a, a computer i guess 
there is many people with many different uh, points of view on this topic. I would not rule out incorporating and using AI to our sort of um, advantage here, but I would be wanting to steer away and steer clear of just blindly sticking in AI-generated lay summaries and being like, yeah, there you are. Because ultimately, what we're not just trying to do is have the repository, so the library of lay summaries there, but we're wanting to teach people how to read, how to understand and how to interpret. And that is almost in its own right, like that educational tool, the website will be is so valuable that can never be replaced by just hitting something into, I don't know, chat GTP or something like that. So I think there's two things. There's having the library, but there's also generating it and and, and kind of like practicing that scientific and skeptical thinking. That is something that is one of our main goals here. Is there any way that people can contribute outside, yes. for for example, outside from the UK, but also within? <laughs> yeah, so uh, we're very open towards feedback. So, I mean, that's sort of the basic level. If, let's say, someone has maybe not got time or doesn't want to get too involved, but they have like this really burning piece of feedback they want to give us, then they can just email us at hello at the collaborative library.com. Uh, we're very happy to receive feedback, good or constructive Uh, negative feedback is also fantastic because uh, it'll only make us better. If you have a bit more time and you want to kind of like be a bit more directive, you are very welcome to join our working group, which is fairly non-committal. So you, uh, there's no like strings attached. It's basically as much as people want to get involved or as little. If they want to contribute content, then it's a bit more involved potentially. So We have two different ways of being more formally involved. So that all goes through organizations. So we have partnering organizations and participating organizations, because obviously what we don't want to be doing is creating a network where everyone can just randomly upload and they may not be qualified to potentially, well, contribute content. So participating organizations are organizations such as universities and so on and so forth. And they are the ones that can then sort of like let their members upload content. So if, for instance, you are a student at a university or perhaps you're an alumni or you are staff at a university or you're an expert by experience who's affiliated with a university and you think, oh, I'd really like to do this, then you can nudge your university. There's like a template on our webpage to approach uh, your organization. It could be a university. It could also be a charity. Perhaps you work at a charity or something that can also work. Or if you think, well, my organization is kind of, it's relevant, but I don't think we can really contribute much because I don't know, we have no funding or we're very small or whatever, or we have no students, whatever the reason may be, then you could also become a partnering organization. And that is a, an organization that shares the values but perhaps isn't in a position to actually contribute any content. So those are the, the different levels. So basically, feedback, join the working group, uh, nudge your organization to participate or nudge your organization to be partnering with us. One thing that I remember from your workshop is mm -hmm. that you led us through the analysis of a certain scientific paper, or, or yes. uh, probably several of them even, And you tried to teach us how you can spot different things that tell you about the quality of the paper. 
Yes. So is there like a, a set of criteria for selection of papers that you provide lay summaries for? Or you can basically do that for all kinds of different papers if there is a request for them. And you can add to that the quality analysis as well, that uh, this is yeah. probably not the paper that you're after. <laughs> Yeah. So yes, the idea is to not necessarily restrict what can be uploaded. Because mm -hmm. obviously, I think what we might all agree on is that sometimes a, a very badly executed example is more helpful for the learning process than uh, something that has been done fantastically well. Uh, and that was kind of why I chose a really rubbish paper for my uh, workshop there, because <laughs> yeah. it's just like, it's it's really easy to like see problems. Once you've seen them once, you kind of like remember, oh, that's was in that paper so let's have a look how, how it looks for this one uh -huh. i think the second thing is uh, as you quite correctly have pointed out the the quality checklist so obviously i can give you some ideas of what to look out for but obviously i'm not the only one who's ever done that there's actually a load of different types of studies right so there's what what is called randomized control trials case studies review studies i mean there's all sorts of different ones and it's it's less important what these mean right now but there is quality standards attached to each one of them and there is also guidance on what makes them good or bad so there is a website and there's more than just this one but one that has the most probably quality a checklist and it's called CASP C-A-S-P and that website is really useful when you're a researcher and you want to, for instance, be assessing how good a paper is that you're looking at currently, right? So what we have done as part of the collaborative library, and you can see that in our sort of like in our section where we have all our materials, the glossary and so on and so forth, we have basically lay summarized those. So basically broken down what they, what these different criteria for, for quality are. And we've then developed a scheme where Each of the questions can have a tick, which is a good thing. It can have an X, which is not so good. Or it can have a question mark where oh, we're not so sure about this one. And people can also add some comments to it. So you can look through those and get an idea of how good that particular study is. And even if you're not so sure you really understand those individual questions on that list, you still get an impression because there's if there's loads of Xs, it's probably not so good, is it? If there's loads of ticks... You get the idea. So I guess it's a little bit like fetching people where they are. We can't always address everything to every different audience perfectly. So everyone will feel like they really have understood the depth of whatever has been uh, conveyed. But what we can do is we can at least try and make it easier for people to judge the quality by giving them the tools. And as people are hopefully contributing and as people are consuming more of those lay summaries, they'll also learn and then they'll start being able to judge by themselves, perhaps, the quality of the underlying papers. Yeah, so what have been done so far with results or like with, with what results? So the number mm -hmm. of lay summaries available, for example, and your mm -hmm. outreach. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, the, building the site was a major thing that we had to do. That took us ages, much longer than we thought it was going to take, uh, partially because there was a lot of trouble around licensing. And I've mentioned that very briefly earlier. But if you're lay summarizing articles from publishing groups, you need to absolutely make sure that the licensing is okay. So that was a major thing that we um, did at the beginning to make sure that's all safe and sound, because all the, the lay summaries that are on our site are going to be available 
with an open access kind of license to kind of like keep the idea of open access going. We've also started putting together those tool- tools to help uh, people understand the science. So the glossary, the quality checklist, that's a big achievement that we have made to this point. We've created a bit of a budding network with organizations with sort of with similar values, such as the Knowledge Equity Network uh, and several charities that you can see there. There's also a lot in the pipeline still that are currently sitting on our letter of agreement. The, the works uh, tick slowly as far as universities are concerned as well. <laughs> but we have done three case studies to date with uh, universities where we've basically implemented the, the coursework and uh, we've had pretty fantastic results. So the students love it. The quality of the work that has been produced is, is astonishing. I mean, we're, we're really having like a TikTok generations of students who are so able when it comes to all this techie stuff. I mean, some of those uh, summaries I wanted to stick on straight on the page. As, that's as good as they were. Um, the second thing is mm. we've obviously started spreading the word big time because at the moment... I guess what we're now waiting for is for the universities to really implement this so we can see the amount of lay summaries like increase. We have mostly spent our own personal time on kind of like developing the network. I've been pitching left, right and center to universities. So we've got like in the region of 20 universities now lined up to hopefully join very soon. Uh, and that's not just within the UK, but also abroad. There is a selection of lay summaries already on there. But if you go, then don't expect too much, because as I say, we're very new. It's sort of still budding. But hopefully once the universities sign on, uh, we'll have a few more on there. I guess we're very excited about all the potential participating and, and, and partnering organizations, some of which are quite high profile names. I don't want to say anything at this stage, uh, not to jinx it, but we've got some really fun uh, partners kind of like potentially lined up and, and we're going to be applying for some funding as well. And we've also won a few prizes here and there for like startup of the year and so on and so forth. So it's quite, it's things are kind of like happening, if you know what I mean. But it's interesting because I quite sweetly perhaps naively thought oh yeah like we'll we'll start this and then within three years we'll start like seeing the content uh, build which clearly was not the case because it just (laughs) takes so long it's mostly the checking of the letters of agreement and these types of things like all the all the sort of like technical detail if you will so we're kind of at the moment very much relying on the innovative open-minded but skeptical uh sort of crowd (laughs) to to help us uh push this forwards Great. Yeah. And so far, as is my understanding that so far, this has been done on everyone's free time. I mean, well, it's a it's a charity as of now, not coming with any kind of paid work for anyone. Yes. So we're not officially a registered charity, because as we ha- had to find out, and this is a learning curve for me as well, I've never done anything of this big scale yet. Uh, you need a lot of capital to actually fund a charity and all the things that come with the charity. So at the moment, we're a registered company. But we have mm-hmm. set it up okay. in a way and uh, we've got sort of a business model that will never require anyone to pay for accessing any of the materials or signing up or anything. Like you don't even have to register to see the content, if that makes sense. So it's completely open. For the time being, we are a company. But in the longer run, once we have some some funding coming in and once uh, sort of the initial phase is three, we would like to convert to a charity but at the moment we're not but yes everything has been done in mainly my and my poor Anthony's (laughs) safe spare time (laughs) and yeah but but it's been fantastic I mean the the amount of fun people and interesting people and skeptic people that I've talked to over the last 
well, it's now coming on for three years. It's it's quite fantastical. And what I find time and time again is that the the resonance is incredibly positive. I think it's just that thing where we now just need to hold on that tiny little bit longer to finally see <laughs> sort of all the legal departments at the universities and organizations to kind of like finally wave through that paperwork, which is there's not that much of it, actually. It's just literally one letter of agreement, but they need to make sure that everything is watertight. Huh? It's too good to be true. That's one of the things that I always hear from everyone who's like, but yeah, but where's the catch? Where is it though? Like, when do we pay? Are you sure this is going to stay open? I'm like, yeah, because we, you see, at the end of the day, we really believe in this platform and we think this is something that ought to have been done years ago, but it hasn't. So I guess just a, as a little final sentence on that one. I think it's just sticking with it and hoping that in the future we will be able to make this run really smoothly and just as smoothly as, as we are now. I have not mentioned uh, one thing, which is that in the longer run, because one of our key ideas is to basically host most of the audio and the video content on our YouTube channel. So we obviously need people subscribing to that in order to make this sort of sustainable. What we want to be doing is once we have hopefully hundreds, thousands of lay summaries coming in and money also generated from that, we want to then invest that back into research funding and kind of like finance if effectively the next generation of studies and those types of things. So that's also something that we also have in our T's and C's where basically the idea is you don't pay. And if you contribute, you might even get something back. Isn't that wonderful? But Fantastic. that is in principle. So <laughs> bear with us on that one. Mm -hmm. Well, I admire your energy, your enthusiasm, and the the whole project makes so much sense. It's absolutely amazing to hear you talk about that. And I'd like to thank you for, for coming on the show and spreading the word. We hope we can contribute in our own way by publishing this and putting it out there so that everyone can hear about it and use it and contribute if they can. That would be fabulous. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> thank it <you>. was great. <laughs> so Anya Harrison, thank you again. And hope to bump into you at any of the international conventions, mm -hmm. well, like QED last year. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks thank for you. having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I have to tell you this, guys. When I sat down to do this recording... Yeah, it's a bit of a technical background for, for our listeners. We recorded the interview and then a couple of things that we wanted to say as well. So when I sat down to record the interview, I was so exhausted because of all the traveling and everything. But by the end of it, I didn't feel any of the tiredness. Like she's so enthusiastic and it's contagious. <laughs> it's just, I just felt like I, I want to be a part of it. I want to, I want to do something. I, and, and I want to help them achieve their goals because they are wonderful and they are serving the whole of humanity. Yeah, with, with the passion that she wonderful. has, how can they fail? <laughs> it will, must be a yeah, success. Exactly. <laughs> With passion comes dedication, and the dedication is what will make you achieve those things, I think. But not only is she super enthusiastic, she's also really smart, I should say. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, without that, no one could pull off such mm -hmm. an uh, venture. Exactly. So like, it's uh, only dedication doesn't win any race, sadly. So you, you have to have the yeah, and the especially too. <laughs> yeah, you can be very energetic and dedicated to an absolutely silly cause, and uh, that would achieve the opposite of what we would like to see. <laughs> 
All right. But with that, I believe it's time for us to say goodbye. I'd like to thank both of you, Annika and Pontus, for today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Many, many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so and spread the word. Please share our content, subscribe to our channels, and we'll be back next week. So until then, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Bis lat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can be.